are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're looking at chapter 9 tonight. And verses 13 through 21. Revelation 9, 13. You're going to find this on page 1033 of the Pew Bible. So we'll be reading together out of chapter 9, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, 21. Hear the word of God. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses, it's in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Well, this text describes in figurative language a judgment announced by the angel. You remember in verse 12, it said, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And that first woe, or the fifth trumpet, unleashed demonic demonic forces. And they were described as gruesome locusts. The second woe is before us. And this judgment introduces something far more deadly than that one. Whereas the locusts tortured people, these evil angels kill them. And everything is intensified as the trumpets go on. It is yet another severe and preliminary warning of the final judgment to come. And these warnings are like shots off the starboard bow that God gives out of mercy. He makes it known to all who will listen that ultimate judgment is ahead. And it highlights, I think, the seriousness and the ill desert of sin as well as the need for repentance. So we look at the text and we find that a solitary voice from the altar gives a very solemn command to the sixth angel. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. You remember it was from under that altar that the martyred saints cried out to God. 
It was from that same altar that rose the saints' prayers as incense before the throne in chapter 8. From there will come the angel with a sharp sickle to harvest the earth in chapter 14. And it is from there, that very same altar, that this voice comes, and he has the authority of God and the sanction of God. Of course, that being the case, we must conclude that it is the voice of Jesus himself. And he orders the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates to be released in verse 14. And the identity of these angels is mysterious, to be sure. We're not exactly told who they are. But the definite article, the, suggests that they're familiar to John's readers. It's a specific group. The fact that they've been bound suggests bad angels, because I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says good angels are ever bound. So these are evil spirits who have been restrained until now, demonic forces. And for this purpose, God prepared them. And for this hour and day and month and year, it is specific. It's part of his grand design, part of God's eternal plan, which unfolds precisely as he pleases. You may remember in Daniel chapter 4 how Nebuchadnezzar said, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And they're bound at the great river Euphrates. You may remember how that was the ideal boundary of the promised land. Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This river has always been important. It's one of the four rivers in Eden in Genesis chapter two. It ran through Babylon it was where Pharaoh Nietzsche was defeated, and it's where Cyrus crossed over. And it's from that border and beyond that came the dreaded Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Parthians. And so John's audience, you can imagine, were painfully familiar with the significance of the river Euphrates, and anything that came from beyond that is evil and destructive. And so these evil spirits are from a distant, alien, hostile place, and they're to be dreaded. John says they're twice 10,000 times 10,000, which, doing rapid mathematics, is 200 million. It's simply a symbolic equation. It's a figurative way to indicate that these hordes are almost incalculable. In the Old Testament, conquering soldiers were linked to the Euphrates by the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 46 of the Babylonian invaders, he says, They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts, and they are without number. So what John is doing is picking up on that ancient and alarming perspective. The description of these monstrous horses highlights the fearsome savagery of these creatures. Breastplates of fire. Sapphire and sulfur, a stock phrase, I believe, for punishment. These are punishing creatures. And throughout Revelation, John is drawing heavily from Old Testament imagery. In Genesis 19, just for example, it says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
And Abraham looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Every Jew knew exactly what these meant. And so John continues to describe these frightening creatures with more imagery. He says they have the heads of lions from which came fire, smoke, and sulfur. In other words, they have a ferocious bite. They have tails like serpents with heads that strike and wound. Or in other words, they come with deadly deception. These hellish creatures are terribly fierce. And they have power to afflict people. And I think John's vision underscores the lethal severity of this preliminary judgment. By these three plagues, fire and smoke and sulfur, a full one-third of mankind is slain. So whether by force or deception, the demonic powers bring death to man. 33%, think of it, of the world's population is a vast number, but it's not a majority. So this is another stern warning calling all people to repent and believe. That's what the vision is indicating. And keep in mind that these trumpets characterize the period between the first and the second coming of Christ, the interadvental period, the whole period. So it's entirely feasible that one-third of the population could be killed in this way during that time. Every day on the news, we're told of violent deaths all over the globe. Think of the terrible tragedy of genocide. Think of the awful calamities of war in the Ukraine or Palestine. These are warnings to the rest of the world regarding the judgment to come. Is it not natural then to think that the remainder of the human race would respond appropriately? But it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. The effect of these destructive plagues is horrible. They result in the death of millions. And in face of this second of three dreadful woes, the world's impenitence is absolutely striking. These preliminary judgments do not soften, but they harden the hearts of human beings. How foolish is it to refuse the call to repentance in preference to idols? People who covet the world instead of Christ worship idols, according to Paul. These idols have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but can't smell. Hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. And as Elder Van Drunen reminds us, well, so often those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. You see, unbelievers are spiritually dead and characterized by four sinful deeds. Murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, and thefts. And sometimes believers commit these sins, but they're not characterized by them. They characterize the world. And these four overarching sins sum up the fruit of demon worship. And of course, we discover as we read through this text that these plagues were never intended to produce repentance in the majority of people. A third of the population dies and it only serves to stiffen the necks of the rest. Are we to assume then that God's purpose in warning the world was thwarted? No. The ultimate function, really, is to prepare believers for the judgment. 
It's also to glorify among the nations the just and the righteous name of Yahweh. These divine judgments that we've been looking at in these trumpets plague a world that has utterly renounced him. They're inflicted upon a people who have rejected the mediation of his beloved son. And if we want to see outraged justice, these judgments provide a glimpse. But as always, in the exercise of his wrath, God always remembers mercy. And we must remember that in this sixth trumpet, he only kills a third. Because as he tells us, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So in drawing some observations from this passage, I think that as Christians, we should try to frame realistic expectations of this world. This text, I think, helped a small group of oppressed Christians to whom John was writing. It assisted them in understanding the confusing world in which they lived. Fierce opposition to the gospel will continue on the earth until the end of time. We live in a fallen world. The human race has rebelled against its maker. And in this fallen state, the natural man hates God and hates Christ and hates his church. That's realistic. And so Paul concludes, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Impenitent man, and those of us who remember our impenitence, loves darkness. He would rather perish than part with his sins. Absolutely foolish. Proverbs 8, wisdom says, He who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And this world, it's sunk and it's sinking ever deeper into immoralities and idolatries and sorceries. And that's why the Apostle John himself in his first epistle writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. And so I believe that this is sufficient reason for you and I to frame realistic expectations of this world. Let's face it, the material creation is beautiful. It's full of bounty, but it labors under a curse. The creation glorifies God. It reveals his wisdom, power, and goodness, but it groans. And mankind is totally depraved. Every intention of his heart is only evil continually. And what's interesting to me, and perhaps to you as well, is that for the prizes of this world, an unbeliever is willing to endure a great deal. He'll endure trials. He'll exercise self-denial. He'll overcome great difficulties. For worldly gain and pleasure, he's willing to spend and be spent. But he cares nothing for true wisdom. He's not interested in pursuing it. At best, Jesus means nothing to him, but at worst, Jesus is abhorred by him. And since a majority of people reject the gospel of Christ, none of this should surprise us. Because as Jesus himself teaches, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
It's narrow because it's the way of truth. But they have no eyes to see it, no ears to hear it, no heart to embrace it. It's narrow because it's the way of holiness. But they will not let go of their cherished sin. It's narrow because it's the way of humility. But you know something? Pride will never fit through this gate. And it's narrow because it's the way of love. But the unrenewed heart is innately selfish and cannot love in the way that he should. You may remember in 2010, 33 Chilean miners were trapped deep in the earth, almost a half mile down, 2,300 feet. They were told that a narrow shaft soon would be open for them to escape. It'd be a tight fit. They'd find it difficult to pass through, but it would provide an escape. And I want you to imagine with me the joy that flooded their hearts. It didn't matter to them how narrow it was. Here was their gate to freedom. What did they care that it was a tight fit? It was enough for them that it was a passage to the outside world. And how much more should people respond in faith with joy to the narrow gate of Jesus Christ? Yes, we live in a fallen world, a fallen world that's under the judgment curse of an offended God. He put enmity between the seed of the woman, the godly seed, and the seed of the serpent, the ungodly seed. And therefore, the world hates Christianity, and we should not be surprised. Our expectations of this fallen world must be realistic because this is not our home. We're called to be in the world, but not to be of the world because our citizenship is in heaven. So set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Meanwhile, rejoice and give thanks to God for the gift of repentance unto life. Because you see, unless a man repents, he cannot receive life. He will perish everlastingly. Is it not an amazing instance of divine grace for God to give such a precious gift? Peter says to the Sanhedrin, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he not only provides the way of salvation, he not only invites sinners to receive salvation, but he also makes us willing in the day of his power and enables us to repent. And repentance is a gift. The gospel is a privilege. And salvation is a glorious blessing. When the Jews to whom Peter spoke heard these things, they fell silent as we read, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So my friends, if you've repented and believed, then rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. That didn't come from you. That came from him. But somebody says, wait. I'm not sure I understand exactly what repentance really is. Well, that's an honest confession and a very important question to ask. And I think the devil tries to counterfeit everything God does in redemption, and this is no exception. He does this to deceive human minds and to destroy human souls. So it's important for us to clear away the confusion that may be caused by feelings and emotions. 
Somebody says, is repentance trembling beneath the gospel? No. Felix trembled, but he did not repent. Is repentance showing interest in eternal things? No, because the scribe who was not far from the kingdom was still outside of it. Is repentance humbling oneself under the judgments of God? No, Ahab himself humbled himself externally. Could it be confession of sins and feeling shame? No, not again. Pharaoh said after the seventh plague of hail, I have sinned, and he didn't repent. Could it be breaking bad habits and reforming the outward life? No, even Judas himself said, I betrayed innocent blood and returned the 30 pieces of silver, and he didn't repent. All these things that I've just mentioned will attend true repentance, but they're not the essence of repentance. The essence of repentance is hatred of, turning from, and grieving over my sin. It involves turning to Christ and making a heartfelt attempt to live a godly life. The deep sorrow for sin is attended by the fruits of repentance, and these fruits are simply outwardly expressing what is being inwardly wrought. Some tend to apologize for everything, and yet they change nothing. If we turn from our sin and turn toward Christ in faith, that's the essence of repentance. So let's be attentive to God's voice while we have the opportunity. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you know where that came from? That's from Psalm 95, where the writer rehearses the wilderness wandering. As Kent Hughes puts it, every Jew knew this passage, Psalm 95, by heart, because its opening line served as a call to worship every Sabbath evening in synagogue, week after week, year after year. It was a call to carefully listen to the voice of God. It was the Holy Spirit speaking in David's day. And it was the Holy Spirit speaking in Paul's day. And it's the Holy Spirit speaking in our day. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And as I said, in mercy, God speaks through affliction to warn a rebellious world. The sixth trumpet is sounding as I speak and as you listen. And there is urgency in the psalmist's word today, if you hear his voice. If anyone fails to hear the gospel truth now, there will be less hope for him later. Because as Jesus points out, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If anyone rejects the love of God, nothing will persuade a hard heart to repent. I hope we realize what a great privilege it is to hear God's word and to listen carefully to it. Let's take advantage of the opportunity while it's still called today. Let's be like the Bereans who receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. And let's be confident in the gospel of a crucified Christ as the power of God. Outward plagues, external penalties, Objective warnings, they can't change anything. Let the trumpets sound as loud and as long as they want to. You can't, they can't produce faith. They might frighten the sinner, 
Millions of people dying, that's frightening. They might restrain some gross sin. They might even reform some certain habits, but such trumpet blasts will only harden the hearts of the unregenerate. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Without that new birth of which Jesus spoke, there is no turning. There must be this radical and supernatural change of the heart and the soul of a sinner. It's absolutely necessary because from conception, you and I and everybody else in this world is polluted by evil and enslaved to sin. And over time, with practice, our bad habits stiffen an already stubborn will if God doesn't intervene. You know the saying, you can bend the sapling, but you cannot bend the tree. In a seasoned sinner, the heart is hardened, unbelief is deepened, and the soul is entrenched. No warning of judgment, no outward affliction can bring about a change. So that you know something, even if those souls that are in hell right now could come back to life, they wouldn't repent. Although they dread going back to that lake of fire, they hate God even more. The scariest descriptions of hell that you can come up with or in the Bible cannot transform the heart. We're told if you crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. So apart from God's regenerating grace, a sinner is helpless and hopeless. Unless the Spirit of God gives a new and warm heart of flesh, the old nature will stay the same. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, according to 2 Timothy 3. So if God's going to extend grace, and he does, we saw it this morning, he does so through the gospel of a crucified Christ. And when he does that, we are born again of imperishable seed, living and abiding word of God. That word of the cross may seem scandalous and foolish to the world, but we know, even by experience, that it is the power of God. How wonderful it is when through the gospel, God graciously converts a sinner. I love the story of our departed brother, Alan Ronan's conversion. Do you know it? He was a typical New Yorker entrenched in his unbelief. One day, as he got out of a cab on a New York street, the cabbie gave him a tract, a gospel tract. Alan looked at it and stuffed it in his pocket. And only much later did he even find it and take time to read it. And that's when the Spirit used the gospel to bring Alan into the kingdom of God. His mind was enlightened and his heart was renewed and his life was forever transformed. And he became an heir of eternal life and a permanent member of God's eternal family. As Paul says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment Alan yielded his heart to Christ, he was translated from darkness to light. And Jesus says that there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So take heart, Christian. You are sealed with the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
and wrath can't touch you. And that's a blessing. Amen. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gracious, merciful warnings that you issued to a rebellious, fallen world. We recognize that they won't change stubborn hearts, but they do help us as believers to frame realistic expectations and to see that you are a powerful, wise, just, and holy God. Thank you for the gift of repentance and for the Spirit's work of regeneration. Please receive our praise now because we do offer it with hearts filled with gratitude and joy for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.